Section 24. Our Financial System. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Hirsch. The continued strain to raise the money needed for the work was, undoubtedly to William Booth, the greatest part of his burden all the way through life. And it is, to this day, the puzzle which makes it most difficult to write as to the army's finances. On the one hand, we have to praise God for having helped him so cheerily to shoulder his cross that he did not seem, many times, to feel the burden that was almost crushing him to the ground and hindering all sorts of projects he would gladly have carried out. Yet, on the other hand, we must guard against saying anything that could lead to the impression that the army has now got to the top of its hill of difficulty and needs no more of the help, in small sums as well as in big ones, that has been so generously sent to it. It would be hopeless to attempt to estimate the numbers of appeals the general sent out in any one year, for he not only tried at fixed periods to get for his various funds truly interested subscribers, but was always seeking to link the hearty giver with the deserving receivers. But perhaps the very extremity of his one need helped him with the most practical wisdom to avoid all unnecessary expenditure and to cultivate all those habits of economy and systematic effort which alone made it possible to keep up so vast a work mainly by the gifts of the poor. To this very day, it is the same old struggle to get each five pounds that is wanted together. Yet all of it is precious to us, because it so guarantees exemption from indifference, and the pervasion of all our ranks everywhere, with the principles of self-help, which the general always so inculcated as to make the army everywhere independent of the wealthy, yet their trusted and skillful almoners. Rejoicing as we do in all that, we cannot too strongly guard everyone against the impression that the army has become, either at its center or anywhere else, so situated that there is not at any given moment extraordinary strain in some financial direction. It has come to be very generally known that the individual officer can only keep in existence because he has schooled his desires to be content with what others all around would regard as an impossible pittance. We hear one day of a great city where the conditions of life are such that a rescue home is evidently urgently needed, and the lady who calls our attention to the matter offers at once to find five hundred pounds towards the fitting up of such a home but we know that to keep it up requires gifts amounting to some thousands of pounds each year, which, if not subscribed locally, we shall have to provide from headquarters. Now, what is to be done? Are we to stand still with what seems to us so valuable an offer, not only of money helps, but of opportunity to help? Under the circumstances, we know what the general would have done, he would, without a moment's hesitation, have said, This ought to be done and must be done. And trusting in God, he would have made the other step forward, 
though perfectly conscious that it would probably involve him in new cares and anxieties. Four shillings and tenpence. Now, really, can't we manage that tuppence to make five shillings? Such an appeal, heard at a street corner, where one of our open-air meetings is being closed, is, I fear, the first and last that many people hear of the Salvation Army. They have not been present at the meeting. All the beautiful speaking and singing of happy men and women, anxious to do anything they can for the good of others, of this the passers-by know nothing. Many of them would not be seen standing to listen amidst the crowd. Still less when, for want of any considerable crowd, they would be more conspicuous. Hence they have no chance to see or know what really takes place. Had they even seen the whole process of getting that four shillings and tenpence, they would have noted that most of the money really came from the Salvationists forming the ring, who threw their pence or sixpences gradually in the hope of inciting others to do likewise. As it is, I fear, many go their way disgusted at the whole thing, because of the little scrap of it they have overheard. But pray, what is the essential difference between the call for toppence to make up a shilling and the colossal call made in the name of some royal personage for an additional ten thousand pounds to make up the twenty-five thousand pounds needed for a new hospital wing? Surely a hospital whose value and services commend it to the entire population should need no such spurs as subscription lists published in all the papers or even the memory of a world benefactor, to help it to get the needed funds. But it does, and its energetic promoters, be they royal or not, deserve and get universal praise for stooping, if it be stooping, to any device of this kind needed to get the cash. Do they get it? Is the only question any sensible person asks and nobody questions that our stooping officers and begging sisters get the tuppences and shillings and pounds needed to keep the army going, in spite of all its critics, whether of the blatant street corner or of the kid-gloved slanderer type. If we reflect upon the subject, we shall see how sound and valuable are the principles on which all our twopenny appeals are based. From the very beginning, the general always set up the standard of local self-support as one of the essentials of any real work. Whilst laboring almost exclusively among the poorest of the poor, he wrote in 1870, The entire cost of carrying on the mission at present is about fifty pounds per week. The offerings of the people themselves at the various stations are now about seventeen pounds per week. Indeed, nearly every station is paying its own working expenses. Thus, the poor people themselves do something. This they ought to do. It would be wrong to deprive them of the privilege of giving their might. And if they prize the instrumentalities that have been blessed to them, and are rightly instructed, they will cheerfully give, however small their contribution may be. It has only been by clinging to this plan that the little society, begun in the east of London, has been able to spread itself throughout the world, 
and yet remain independent everywhere of local magnets. And the general had the sorry satisfaction of seeing the structure tested by the most cruel winds of slander and suspicion, with the result that the total of contributions to its funds during the last years has been greater than ever before. Part, indeed, of our greatest difficulty with regard to money now is the large total yearly at our disposal, when all the totals in every country and locality are added together. Anyone can understand that this must be so, and that it could not help us to publish the amount altogether. If in a hundred places only a thousand pounds were raised, anybody can see that to cry aloud about the hundred thousand in any one of those places could not but make everybody in that place less capable of strenuous struggle such as is needed to get together each thousand. Therefore, whilst publishing every year the properly audited balance sheet referring to amounts received and spent in London, and similar balance sheets, similarly audited, in each other capital, we have always refrained and always shall refrain from any such massing of totals, or glorying in any of them, as could help our enemies to check the flow of liberality anywhere. When, in 1895, there seemed to be a general cry for some special investigation into the use made of the fund raised as a result of the General's Darkest England appeal, we were able to get a commission of some of the most eminent men in the country, whose report effectively disposed of any doubts at the time. The commission had for chairman Earl Onslow, and its members were the Right Honorable Sir Henry James, afterwards Lord James, Messrs. Sidney Buxton, Walter Long, and Mr. Edwin Waterhouse, President of the Institute of Chartered Accountants, the Right Honorable Hobhouse, M.P., acted as secretary. The report of no commission could, however, still any hostile tongue. The cry for investigation has always been simply the cry of enmity or envy, which no amount of investigation could ever satisfy. The general perfectly understood this at the time, and wrote to a friend of the discerning order. How I feel generally with respect to the future is expressed in one word, or rather two. Go forward. The Red Sea has to be crossed, and people rescued from hell here and hell hereafter. We must stick to our post. I am quite aware that I may now, probably shall be, more misunderstood than ever. But God and time will fight for me. I must wait and my comrades must wait with me. I need not say that the subject has had, and still has, our fullest consideration, but I cannot say more until I see clearly what position the country will take up towards me during the next few days. Need I say that this report never checked for one day the ferocity of the attacks upon the general or his army? Had public opinion been deluded by the babblings of our critics in any country, we should not only have lost all support, but been consigned to jails as swindlers and robbers. But the fact that we get ever-increasing sums, 
and are ever more and more aided by grants from governments and corporations, or by permissions for street collecting, is the clearest demonstration that we are notoriously upright in all our dealings. So many insinuations have been persistently thrown out, year after year, with regard to the integrity of the General's dealings with finance, that I have taken care not merely to consult with comrades, but to give opportunity to some who were said to have left in disgust with regard to these matters, to correct my own impression if they could. Having been so little at headquarters myself since I left for Germany in 1890, I knew that my own personal knowledge might be disputed and my accuracy questioned. Therefore, I have been extra careful to ascertain, beyond all possibility of dispute, the correctness of the view I now give. One who for many years had the direction of financial affairs at the international headquarters, and who retired through failing health rather than become a burden upon the Army's ever-strained exchequer, wrote me on November 28, 1910, the general has always taken the keenest interest in all questions bearing upon the army's financial affairs, and has ever been alive to the necessity for their being so administered as to ensure the contributing publics having the utmost possible value for the money contributed, at the same time rendering a careful account from year to year of his stewardship. Carefully prepared budgets of income and expenditure are submitted to him year by year in connection with all the central funds. Reports are called for from time to time as to the extent to which such estimates have been realized. He was always keen and far-sighted in his consideration of the proposals put before him, and quick to find a flaw or weakness, or to point out any responsibilities which had not been sufficiently taken into account. Until recent years, when his worldwide journeyings made it necessary to pass the responsibility on to the chief of the staff, he largely initiated his own schemes for raising money and wrote his own principal appeals. Those who refer to the general as a puppet in the hands of others, or as anything but an unselfish, disinterested servant of humanity, only show their ignorance of the subject. One of the schemes by which our finances have been greatly helped everywhere, and which is now imitated by many churches and societies all over the world, the Self-Denial Week, established in 1886, was the General's own invention. It was at a time when, as he writes, in some corps half, and in some more than half, of our soldiers have been for months without any income at all, or at most with just a shilling or two. In addition, many of our regular contributors, as owners of land or of manufacturing houses, have suffered from the depression and have not been able to assist us further. The rapid extension of the army has necessitated an increased expenditure. Our friends will see that our position is really a serious one. What is to be done? Reduction, which means retreat, is impossible. To stand still is equally so. 
we propose that a week be set apart in which every soldier and friend should deny himself of some article of food or clothing or some indulgence which can be done without and that the price gained by this self-denial shall be sent to help us in this emergency deny yourself of something which brings you pleasure or gratification and so not only have the blessing of helping us but the profit which this self-denial will bring to your own soul this effort which in the year of its inauguration only produced four thousand two hundred eighty pounds has in twenty-six years grown till it totaled in great britain in nineteen eleven sixty seven thousand one hundred sixty one pounds and has so taken hold of the people's minds and hearts everywhere as to produce even in poor little belgium last year seventy five hundred francs perhaps it need hardly be explained that the system of special effort and special begging near the entrance to railway stations and in all the most prominent places of the cities which has grown out of this week with the approval of governments and press everywhere has done more than any one could have dreamt of to increase interest in the needs of others and holiness and self-denial in attending to them and it is after all upon that development of practical love for everybody that the army's finance depends merely to have interested so many rich people in the army might have been a great credit to the general's influence but to have raised up everywhere forces of voluntary mendicants who at any rate for weeks at a time are not ashamed to be seen begging in the streets for the good of people they have never seen is an achievement simply boundless in its beneficent value to all mankind and limitless in the guarantee it provides for the permanent maintenance and extension of our work do let me beg you to realize a little of the intense interest taken in our finances locally by all our soldiers did you ever get to know one of our corps treasurers if not believe me that your education is incomplete whether he or she be schoolmistress in the mining village of undergroundby shopkeeper in birmingham or cashier of a london or parisian bank you will find an experienced salvation army treasurer generally one of the most fully developed intelligences living he or she could easily surpass judas iscariot himself either for ability at bargaining or for what we call salvation cheek he considers the duke who owns most of his county or the mayor of the city is duty-bound to help the army whenever its officer thinks a fitting moment has come to him to ask them to do so and the treasurer never thinks that they already have helped us enough every farthing his corps has received or paid for years past has passed through his careful fingers in any city corps i would accept his judgment about a doubtful coin before that of almost any one and no human being could surpass him in eagerness or care to get the very uttermost possible value for every penny spent hours after great meetings are over you may find him with other officers 
busy still parceling coppers, or in some other way serving tables. His own business or family would very often suffer for his late hours of toil in the cause if God allowed that sort of thing. But God has seen to it that many such a treasurer has climbed out of the very gutter into a well-to-do employer's position, because he sought first his kingdom and his righteousness. These treasurers, if anybody took the trouble to interview them, would make it impossible for any decent person to believe the lies that have been told about our not publishing accounts, our extravagance, etc. They know how carefully even the smallest core book or collecting card is examined, and with what precise and skillful method every account is kept. Like almost all our local officers, they are particularly cheery, friendly men and women. I fear we have but few women treasurers, as finance, like so many other things, is supposed to be beyond women's powers. And the sisters really do not, as a rule, like arithmetic. But, man or woman, you have only to watch one of them a few moments, when anybody is trying to arrange a joint excursion with various corps, to see that, with all their kindliness, the interests committed to their charge always command their first sympathy. Treasurer Pittman of Leatherby never could see, and never will, why either Birmingham one, or Leamington, or any other corps, should be more favored or more burdened than his own. Even should his words at times seem rough or few, he will charm you, almost without exception, if you get out of his wife or the captain or somebody all he does and suffers for Christ's sake. Nobody will ever know how often it was the treasurer who gave half the toppence to make up a shilling in the street-corner collection that, perhaps, made the impression that the army was not self-supporting. But, in spite of all his jollity, the treasurer is often a sorely tried and burdened man. For, oh, it is a struggle to get the pence together week after week, especially where the Corps has a hall of its own, for ground rent and interest on which it must pay five pounds to ten pounds a week. The treasurer's great opportunity comes when he has the joy of harboring in his own home, for a night or two, the chief of the staff, or some other special from London. Then he may get a chance to put a word in for his corps. Does the chief ask him, Why do we not get on better in this town? Well, chief, he will reply, Just look at our hall. It fairly stinks. Always has done owing to that canal at the back, that has almost made it impossible for us to get a large congregation, especially in warm weather. But why don't you get a better place? Well, there is nothing in the town large enough to let, and as for building, any site that would be of use would cost a pile of money, and we have no hope of raising any large sum here. Why? Have you no rich friends? There are a few very rich men here, 
I was seeing one of them myself only last month when we wanted to get some new instruments for our band. But what do you think he said to me? Why, said he, I have more than enough to do to keep up my own church. We have got to rebuild it, and it will cost us thirty thousand pounds. There is not a mill owner in the place who does not want to get salvationist work people, even to the boys of our soldiers, because they know they can depend on them. But to help us get a haul? Aha! <laughs> that is not in their line. Therefore, the treasurer and every officer must go on week after week with the miserable beg, 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 which afflicts them, perhaps, even more than the most critical listener. And then our great work must suffer both for want of the needed plant to carry it on, and from the appearance of too much begging, which, in so many instances, has undoubtedly hindered our gathering in the very people we most wished to help. What stories of self-denial, not one week in the year more than another, any such treasurer could tell. How officers managed to rear a healthy and promising family upon less than a pound a week. How the general's own granddaughters made six shillings a week due for their own personal support for months because their corps could not afford more. How the sergeant major's wife did her washing during the night before self-denial week came on, so as to be able to stand all day long outside the station, in the cold, collecting. How Widow Week keeps up her cartridges. That is to say, goes on giving the Corps a regular subscription of sixpence a week since her husband's death, as before, lest the Corps should go down. Lately they took me to see a German widow, now suffering in a hospital, who, when her whole weekly cash earnings outside only totaled two shillings a week, invariably put in her cartridge two fennings, say a farthing. No, I gave her nothing, nor did anybody else in my presence, as her needs are now attended to, and I am sure she would rather keep up the fact of never having received anything from, but always having given to, the army. Of course, we do not pretend that all treasurers and soldiers are of the model sort. If they were, many of our bitterest financial struggles would never occur. If everybody who kept back part of what they ought to give to God were struck dead for singing such words, were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small, God would need many a regiment of corpse carriers, I fear. The general, seventeen years ago, wrote to a wealthy lady who had been excusing somebody's want of liberality to us by some of the slanders they had heard. Tell your friends in Gulltown, the same that I am telling the public, that nine out of every ten statements in the press that reflect upon us are either out-and-out -out falsehoods or half-lies, which are worse still, and that although not infallible, when in one case out of ten we do make mistakes, there are circumstances which, if known, would excuse them very largely. I'm having wonderful meetings, immense crowds, soul-awakening influences all day, penitent forms, backsliders, sinners, and half-and-half -and -half saints coming back to God. 
never saw anything anywhere in any part of my life much more blessed. Read my letter in the war cry about the two days. Every word is from my heart. Money or no money, we must and will have salvation. If the rich won't help Lazarus through us, then their money must perish. We must do the best we can. Join the Light Brigade and give a halfpenny per week. We shall get through. Is your soul prospering? Cast yourself this morning on your Lord for a supply of all you need. The Light Brigade is another invention of the General's, partly founded upon the Indian habit of taking a handful out of every new supply of food and laying it aside for the priests. The Light Brigade consists of soldiers and friends who place on their table a little box into which all who like can drop a little coin by way of thanksgiving to God and care for the poor before they eat. These are called grace-before-meat boxes, and in England alone they produced last year 8,284 pounds, 17 shillings, 2 pennies, for the support of our social work. Altogether, I venture to say it'll be found that for every shilling he ever got anywhere, he prompted the giving of at least a thousand shillings to other benevolent enterprises and that mankind is indebted to him for the stirring up to benevolent action of countless millions who never even heard his name. At the same time, it will be found that by his financial plans, he has made the army so largely dependent upon public opinion that were its beneficent work to cease, its means of survival would at the same time become extinct so that it could not continue to exist when it had ceased to be a Salvation Army. End of section 24. Recording by Tom Hirsch.